Pastor John, and I just want you to know what a privilege it is for me to be able to be here uh, with you and to stand in this place and to stand before the Lord and open the Word of God together, which is an exciting thing to do. Let's pray. Lord, this is uh, your revelation to us, and we want to learn from it because you have preserved it through the ages by your Spirit so that we might be able to continue to know you, to worship you, and to serve you as your people. And so we ask that by your Spirit you would help us to listen to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, Lord. Now what? I mean, we've, we, we crossed the Jordan. Well, you, you helped us cross the Jordan. And here we are. We're, we're right on the brink of, of war. And, and, well, the spies found out from Rahab. Everybody saw it. I mean, the spies tell us that they're scared spitless in Jericho about what they've seen here. But, Lord, what next? What do you want us to do? There's no... There's no going back. I mean, the waters have returned. There's no going back. There's no escape route if they come out after us. Where are we going to go? Do we, do we lay siege to Jericho? Do we go around the north side and find a way to, is there going to be a breach in the wall? Lord, what's next? I want to go forward with you. How do we take ground for you with God on our side? Now, hopefully you recognize there that that's General Joshua. He's mulling over his options. The Israelites have come through the Jordan miraculously. They've been released from slavery. They've wandered through uh, the wilderness for 40 years. The waters have parted. They're right there. They're, the city of Jericho is just across the plain, fortified city. And uh, he's got to figure out, Lord, I need your guidance. What is it that you want me to do? Now, this isn't an unfamiliar thing for any of us, that kind of situation. And it might not be a walled city, it might be something like what the pinches faced or others. Every one of us has those things that we have to face that are difficult and we want to go through the battle with the Lord. We want to be on his side when we, when we do this, we want him to be with us. We've gone through the COVID pandemic these years and I don't know about you, but it's not the kind of change as much as the rate of change in everything, in politics and economics and supply chain and the global fragility of our world. Everywhere you turn, it's been difficult. And we, we discover that it's not only viruses that go viral. It is evil. We are a global networked, all, a globe networked together. And it's disasters and it's conspiracy theories and all kinds of challenges that descend upon us. How are we going to face them? And the same thing is true to recognize for a church. The last uh, few years I've been listening to podcasts and listening to pastors and other churches. They're all saying the same thing. We've experienced this division, this difficulty, there's anxiety. We, what's next, Lord? We don't know what to do. As a church, what is our role? We know from Scripture that we don't just come here every Sunday to get what we need to get through the week. We are to carry the gospel of the salvation of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth and make mature disciples until he comes. And this 
desperate world needs Jesus. How do we take ground for God? They need Jesus. I, I've been in the habit recently of quoting John 3, 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. People need Jesus. We've got more seminars and more suicides. We've got more financial counseling and more debt. We've got more gun laws and gun safety and more gun violence. We've got more marriage counseling and more divorce. We've got more understanding of mental illness and less mental health. We've got more internet connections and less communication. This world needs Christ, and we are called to take ground for him. And that's even true in this faraway little place called Yakima. We're connected globally, and here we are as a church, Sun Valley, <laughs> coming on this, this anniversary. How do you continue to take ground for God? What, what's the answer for this? This is time to think like Joshua. It's a new, new day, it's a new land, it's a new time. Lord, what are we going to do now to take ground with God? We want God on our side when we do that. So let's uh, learn from Joshua and, and from the guidance that God gives here. Go back with me to uh, the chapter 5 of Joshua. Here's God's plan at this really critical military moment. It's, it's a, a critical moment for the country. Uh, we'll read again through, and I'm reading from the NIV, a little different language. It'll, it'll broaden it out for you. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan, all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites, till they crossed over their hearts, melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. And at that time, the Lord said to, to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. You've got to be kidding. That's crazy. I mean, here they are within spear shot of Jericho. And God tells Joshua to incapacitate the entire army by performing this sort of major, delicate, personal surgery on all of the men. Talk about vulnerability. When I became the uh, main teaching pastor at Westside, I sort of kidded uh, the other pastors that I would stand in the pulpit and I would preach about salvation and Christ the shepherd and heaven's glory. And when they got a chance to preach, they could take all the passages and texts that dealt with genealogies and uh, gender identity and the role of women and things like circumcision. Because how do you talk about circumcision in church? I don't know, if Pastor John, if I ever did that to you and give you those hard texts. But I'm not a lead pastor anymore, so here we go. We're going to talk about circumcision. Put it, let's put it in modern terms. What if God comes and says, okay, President Zelensky, before you launch Ukraine's counterattack against the invading Russian army, I want you to give everybody an appendectomy all at once uh, and let them lay their healing for a couple weeks or months right within the range of Putin's missiles. I don't know exactly what we're going to toll what Joshua thought, but if it was me, Lord, did I hear you right? Are, are you kidding? Are you sure this is what we need to do right now? Well, there's a reason, obvious. Verse 3. Joshua made the flint knives. He circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath, Haralot. And this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. 
All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised to their ancestors to give us, land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones that Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained there where they were in the camp until they were healed. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal, which means rolled away to this day. Apparently, you can only take ground for God when you are marked by his ownership. And the the mark of ownership on Israel was circumcision. There's a physical mark of the covenant that God had made with Abraham centuries before in Genesis 17. Abraham was chosen. He was declared righteous by his faith. He was made uh, the, the father of many nations. Blessing was promised. The land was promised. And after that, God chose for there to be a symbol, a mark of that covenant. And the mark that he chose was circumcision on the males. Why? Why does God give that kind of sign? Well, God gives signs of his covenant that fit the relationship that he has with the people at that time. For example, when God made a covenant with Noah and with the earth not to flood the earth again, he put his sign in the sky, the rainbow, and the rainbow was a covering on the earth as a sign of that covenant. The sign fit the relationship. So when God called the nation, he decided he would put a physical mark on the most personal and private place of the body that covered his people as a constant reminder every day in intimate settings of his covenant choosing of his ownership of his people. Now, I'm not going to try to get into all the reasons why God chose a sign for the males only. It was a patriarchal culture, and that would be for another sermon. Pastor John, you can preach that sermon (laughs) on another day. But both the men and the women would be constantly reminded of this. And none of the people with Joshua had yet been circumcised. The disobedience of that generation that came out of Egypt was also a disobedience in that he did not circumcise their their sons in the wilderness. They did not obey. And so this whole new generation had not been marked with this covenant sign. And God is saying, look, this is a new day. This is a fresh relationship. We're moving forward into the the promised land. And I'm going to roll away all the reproach of slavery in Egypt. I'm going to roll away the reproach of those 40 years of discipline. It's time to start fresh and you need to obey me. That's where it starts. Covenant obedience is more important right now than Jericho. And so I want you to go forward with this command. I want you to know that you're mine. I brought you out of Egypt as mine. I'm going to take you into Canaan. The promised land is mine. And I want everybody from Egypt to Jericho and beyond to know you are mine. You do not take ground for God unless you are marked by his ownership. That comes first. So how does that apply to us then? As believers, we're not under that Abrahamic covenant. 
Jesus establishes a new covenant with us. And he has a different mark that fits that relationship that he has with us now. And it is the mark of baptism. That new covenant sign is the mark of baptism. Colossians 2 makes this clear. It says, In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And then you were, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all our sins. God's mark of ownership now is not in the sky, it's not on men's bodies, it's in the hearts, it's in the hearts of men and women who are his children. And baptism is that outward sign of this inward work that God has done, the reality of the sinful nature which is gone and that we have been raised to a new life with Jesus Christ. Baptism, of course, doesn't make you a child of God any more than circumcision made Adam's descendants a descendant. They already were, but it was the sign. Circumcision was the mark. Baptism is the mark that the Lord has chosen to demonstrate this new covenant that he has with us in the death. You can just see it in baptism, in the death and the resurrection to new life. That's the mark. And by preserving this Old Testament text for us, this example of God's people then, God is saying to us the same thing. Your relationship in your heart with God is more important than the next battle. It's more important than that Jericho, whatever that challenge is out there. And before you head out to try to take ground for me, I want you to know that you're mine. You belong to me. Whatever you're going to do next in this global wild world, the next 20 years, whatever it's going to be, I want you to know that you're mine in Christ. And I, I brought you out of sin as mine. I'm going to take you into your heavenly reward as mine. And I want everybody from Sun Valley to Yakima to Kalamazoo to beyond to know that you belong to me. You're mine. You only take ground for God marked by his ownership before you launch off into some ministry or project or challenge. And every time we celebrate baptism, whether it's our, our time to do that or whether we are in the body of Christ celebrating somebody else's baptism, we're publicly proclaiming that he owns us. We belong to him. It's his ownership. So here's Joshua again. Okay, Lord. Got it. No disobedience. The men have been marked. Understand that. No, there's no retreat. There's no turning back, Lord. Uh, there's uh, no plan yet. And now there's no army. Lord, we can't go anywhere for a while. Incapacitated. Lord, apparently you've incapacitated Jericho in fear. Thank you for that. But Lord, what do you want us to do next? How... How do we take ground for God with God on our side? Well, there's another delay. Another pause before we find out how we're going to do that. Look at verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. 
The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, the unleavened bread and the roasted grain. And the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land, and there was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate the produce of Canaan. Now, you only take ground for God marked by his ownership. You also only take ground for God remembering his salvation. And the remembrance that God ordained for his people was the Passover meal. On the 14th day of their first month, they were to gather together every single year and remember through the Passover meal what God had done to deliver them from slavery as their redeemer. Didn't want them to ever forget it. You must remember this. But apparently there's no record of them actually celebrating the Passover in the wilderness. They let that one slip as well. And so God says, I want you to know that it's more important to me right now that you remember my salvation than worrying about Jericho or the conquest. You need to know that I've saved you and never forget. And this one's a little bit easier, I think, for us to apply to us because it carries directly over into the remembrance that we've been given, which is the Lord's Supper. God's salvation for us is remembered in the Lord's Supper meal. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, you know, he took the bread, he took the cup. He said, look, he's celebrating the Passover meal like the Jews were supposed to, but this is a new covenant and I have a new remembrance. And we don't remember the Exodus delivery and the blood of the Lamb. We remember the crucifixion, resurrection delivery and the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. This is our remembrance and Jesus died to bring that forgiveness, that deliverance from slavery to sin and eternal life for all who believe. Don't go off into some project or some ministry without this kind of remembrance. Your relationship with him is more important than your work for him. The relationship has to come first. So way back here in the Old Testament in Joshua 5, we have the prefiguring of the New Testament ordinances of the church. They, they directly relate. And we don't call them in our churches, we don't call them sacraments. And there's a reason why we don't always use that term. The Roman church used to, used to say that basically grace was conferred through the sacraments of, and the church to, to the people. And we know there's really not any more than one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ, to the heart of each individual. And so it's not the conferral of salvation or grace through the church. It is through Christ that we receive our salvation. Uh, nevertheless, we, we are to remember it with an ordinance. We call it an ordinance, which is also a kind of confusing term because it is not uh, weaponry or ammunition for an army. Think of orders. These are orders that God has given to us as a church. And we are ordered to do these two things. If you will listen to what the world tells us that we are as Christians, if you listen long enough, even for a short period of time, you may begin to forget your identity, that you are a servant of Christ, that you are owned by him. And that's why baptism is important to, to remember that mark. And if you ever get distracted or immersed in the, I should say since, I can become distracted or immersed in the things of the world, I can lose humility or gratitude for the salvation that the Lord has given to me. And that's why we're given the order as a church 
to remember on a regular basis through the Lord's Supper his salvation of us. Our need to put the Lord first is just as great as theirs was. When Israel crossed the Jordan, you'll remember how that transpired. They didn't just sort of rush to the water's edge. They stayed back, and the first thing to go through the waters as they parted was the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the symbol and actually the presence of God in their midst. This was God's business. This was his work. This was not some kind of military human invasion of the land of Canaan. This was God's spiritual work. He was going to do it. And he wants them to know as they get across to the other side, you don't take ground for God unless you're marked by his ownership. You don't take ground for God unless you remember his salvation. That has to come first. Okay, Lord, people are marked. There's no disobedience here. We have done what you have told us to do. Now we're ready. There's no retreat. There's no turning back. There's no escape route at this point. Lord, there's no army, and now there's no food. Lord, what are we going to feed the kids, let alone the soldiers? There's no manna now, Lord. But we're ready. Should we maybe find a way to send an envoy so they'll surrender? Should we fire, over, shoot fire over the walls to drive them out? Is the, how is it we want to take Jericho? What's the plan? How do we take ground for you with God on our side? Time out. <laughs> There's another delay. Before we get to Jericho, verse 13. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a, draw, a sword in his hand, a drawn sword. Joshua went up to him. I imagine maybe with his hand on the hilt, you know, maybe just ready there. He went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? No, neither, he replied. But as commander of the Lord's army, I have come now. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You only take ground for God when you are surrendered to his command. God asserts his command over Israel and over their leader, Joshua. And this whole scene to me is kind of uh, otherworldly, kind of eerie. There's an amazing power punch with the word no right there, or neither, in verse 14. And I, I love the way I heard Reverend Tony Evans say this a number of years ago. Joshua sees this impressive warrior and says, hey, whose side are you on anyway? And the warrior basically says, let's get one thing straight right from the start. I didn't come here to take sides. I came here to take over. I am the commander of the Lord's armies. Joshua hit the deck. Face down. He had, God had gotten Joshua's attention. And it's hard to know if this was an angel or, or 
what manifestation this was. Joshua seems to worship this commander in some way. Angels don't accept worship that is due to God. Uh, this is some sort of manifestation of the divine presence. And we know that too because of what he tells him to do. We don't get the plan for Jericho yet. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. That's exactly what God said to Moses out of the burning bush many years ago. God had Joshua, he had the entire nation exactly where he wanted them. They were in complete submission, in complete dependence, and vulnerable before God. Now they're ready for orders on how to take, take ground. Joshua knows who's in charge of the whole operation. He realizes this is going to be God's business, and now he maybe is getting the question right. The question is not, is God on my side? But am I on God's side? It's not how am I going to take ground with God on my side. It's that God's going to take ground. How do I get into a position where he might take me along? <laughs> where I might be on his side to do what he wants done? That's the real question. And great leaders are led. And Joshua understood that. And I don't know how he, you know, later we want to make plans. We want to get things going. He might have thought that we've got Jericho right where we want them. But God says, no, I want you right where I want you. And Joshua was there. God doesn't come to take sides. He comes to take over and to take us with him. All right, so how does that one apply to us? Well, it seems to me, um, if we can only take ground, um, if we can only take ground if we're surrendered to God, it seems like there's some things we've got to surrender, which is really our own agenda, whatever they might be. I look at my life, and I have to confess there's probably too many times when I have come to God with ideas and plans and come to him sort of recruiting him like we choose sides for dodgeball, you know? We, we want God on our side. We're going to choose him first because we want him behind our agenda and our, our plans. And that's the way we come to God. We want him on our side. But let me get, get into some trouble with some examples here. You know, God is not a Baptist or a Presbyterian. I mean, I'm not saying that we should do all that we can to accurately interpret the scriptures. But I don't know any of us who would claim that we've got all complete, accurate knowledge on all areas of everything. We're still learning. We're still learning. And my point is, we might have a need for some of those kinds of designations and labels, but you don't label God. He is God. And he has his own agenda that might be even more wild and crazy than your plans or your agenda. I, I don't know if you know this, I'm sure you do, but God is not a Republican. Some people will be shocked to find out that God's not a Democrat. And you know, we rejoice in the freedoms we have in this country, but I think in the last 50 years of my lifetime, it's been all too easy for American Christians to draft God for their political ends and agendas. And all kinds of issues. I wrote some of them for you in the notes there. 
You go down through this list, denomination, pro-life, social justice, sexual ethics, civil rights, the family, the environment, the poor and the needy, race. Every one of those, you can go politically sort of right or left on all these things. I just happen to list a few of God's standards and God's scripture. When God comes to these things, he has his own way that he wants it done. And it's not if he's on our side, it's are we gonna be on his side to be used by him to accomplish what he wants. God is not black or white. Maybe you've heard the little story about the friends, the Anglo-American, the African-American, had this sort of good-natured debate all their lives about whether or not God was black or white. And they die on the same day and they go to heaven and God's going to settle the debate. And he shows up before them and said, Buenos dias, muchachos. God is spirit, and God is God. We don't draft God for our purposes, our causes, our sides, or our colors. And so if we're going to surrender to him, the first thing we need to do is we need to submit our agenda and then submit to his agenda and find out what that is. How do we do that? Well, from this passage, maybe the obvious thing to do is to sort of hit the deck. And just get on our knees and pray. God, what are you doing? Am I right with you? Is my relationship right with you? Because you're only going to take ground for God when God takes command of you. And Dennis alluded to that earlier when he was leading us through our our time of worship. We we might take ground for ourselves, but if you're going to take ground for God, you've got to be surrendered to his command. And so there's ways to be able to do this. We need to be confessing his ownership. We belong to him. You know, we love to to quote the fruit of the Spirit and all these ways that we should behave and how the Spirit works through us. Do you know what the next verses say? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, and since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We, we go to him first. We need to be constantly going through and reminding ourselves and remembering his salvation, 2 Timothy 1. He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we have done. It's not our Jericho. It's not our battle plan. It's not all the things that we have done, but because of his own purpose and his grace that was given to us in Christ Jesus. And the, one of the most practical and simple ways of obeying this and doing this is just the celebration of the ordinances. Baptism, the declaration of death and resurrection and new life, and the Lord's Supper, remembering his salvation. After getting right with God first, then we're ready to be in a position to march. And God will take ground with his church and will prevail when we're in a position to be on his side because your relationship with him is more important than your work for him. The relationship has to precede the work to be right with him. So I'll bring this right into the room thinking about 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I was still relatively new in the ministry there at Westside Church. As John alluded to, those of you who were there, we were going through a difficult time as a church And the church and the the congregation leaders had some big decisions to make about the direction of the church 
and where God wanted us to go. And I had read through some of the folks who had gone before me, godly men and women, that they had talked at Westside about maybe someday down the road in the future they would plant a church. Then Pastor John comes to me with some others and says, well, what are we waiting for? Why not now? And we were trying to come up with answers to that question. Why not now? Well, because we want to be a bigger church at West. No, that doesn't sound right. God is doing this in our world. This is the way he's spreading the gospel by planting daughter churches. We could see other churches doing it. Why wouldn't we follow what God is doing? Well, we don't want to see our friends leave. We need these leaders here. No, that doesn't sound right either. And so, as, as John mentioned, we started praying. And we got on our knees and tried to share that with some of the other leaders and some of the other folks who, who were maybe being raised up by God to join and to be a part of the plant. We, we prayed about it with the idea that the, this is the Lord's church. It belongs to him. We're his servants. If we can keep salvation in Jesus Christ as the foundation, if we can make sure that the gospel will be the reason to take this risk, I mean, it was, it was a kind of a crazy thing to do. In fact, those of you that were there, you'll all remember that anybody outside of the church at that time thought that the church plant was a church split. And they said, oh, come on. Tell us what, what really happened here. They, they say it's a daughter church, but really something. But it wasn't a church split. We were just doing the crazy thing because that's what it seemed like God wanted to do, and we wanted to be on his side. And so the people of Westside, but even more so Pastor John and the leaders and those of you that were there at the time, you took the risk to do the right thing. And once planted uh, as the mother church, we really didn't want to be helicopter parents. And so we just sort of stepped back and to see what God, I have to be honest, I sort of felt like an absentee parent. I'm not sure we always helped as much as we could have. But I'm here to tell you from a distance, for myself and even for those who were in leadership at the time and since then, we have been able to see that God has been faithful to you. And you have been faithful to God. Not only those of you that went at the very beginning, but all of those who have joined with this church family. You have, you have kept close to him. You've kept close to his word. You've made the gospel a priority and that original commitment to go to him first and to stand for him, to follow him. And I think we can all be very thankful that here in front of us is a, an example a blessing of what happened in, in Joshua 5, of going to the Lord and submitting to him and asking the question, all right, what do we do now? And I'm not here to say that we did everything perfectly right, but the Lord has been faithful and he took command of you 20 years ago and has until now. But therein is the challenge. Because that was then, and this is now. And there's a new challenge. We're a part of a global world. Somebody can tweet something in Indonesia and there's a famine in the middle of Denmark. I mean, there, there are challenges that come from every angle. And I have listened to the pastors who are teaching and preaching and they will say, everybody's saying the same thing. We're on the brink 
Uh, this is a, a time for the remnant to rise. Judgment begins with the house of God. This is a new opportunity. What do we do now? And many people have the honesty to say, I don't know exactly what we should be doing. Things are different than they were not too long ago. There are no answers. Oh, time out. <laughs> the answer's here. We've got to go back to a relationship with Jesus first and foremost and surrender to him. Chandra and I have been enjoying and watching the movie series, The Chosen, and whatever you think about that, um, one thing that it has done for me to watch this series is that it's reminded me that the things that we believe are not only true, they're real. And Jesus is a living hope. And our relationship with him and our focus upon him is the starting place for absolutely anything else, everything else that we will do. And this has been Pastor John's focus in the Mark series. For us to know and believe the complete identity of Christ who is Savior, who is Lord, who is God in the flesh and in glory. And he is the focus. And, we and if we're going to head out into our next Jericho, whether it's for you individually, for your family, or for Sun Valley Church... First, we've got to come to Jesus and say, Lord, we're marked. We are remembering. We are surrendered. You own us. You have saved us. And you are our commander. You're in charge. And then and only then are we in a position to move out and take ground and do the next crazy thing that the Lord might want us to do. Joshua was ready. Okay, Lord, <laughs> I understand. We're surrendered to you, no disobedience. We understand your covenant and your salvation, Lord. There's no retreat, there's no turning back, there's no army, there's no food, and there's no plan, but that's okay. That's crazy. You're in charge, and we are surrendered to you. Besides, how wild and crazy could your plan for destroying Jericho possibly be anyway? Will you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful to be gathered in the moment it's wonderful to be able to stop and to pause and to focus again on your word, to worship you in adoration and confession and surrender. But we just confess, Lord, that we are always asking the what next question. I know I am all the time. What's next for me? What's next for our family? What's next for the, your church, for the people of Sun Valley Church? What's next? Lord, our prayer today is that we would put things in the right order. That at this moment for us, we would again surrender to you. We want to take ground. We want to be used of you. But that's your decision as to how you want it done. And we want to surrender to your agenda. We want to follow you in obedience. We want to be right with God in Jesus Christ. And so we bow at this moment for that purpose, 
And we thank you with gratitude for what you've done in the past to demonstrate your love, compassion, your forgiveness, your kindness, what you are doing, and we can trust you that you will do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.